You're listening to The Media Narrative. I'm Rob Hochschild. Adam and Arlie Hochschild are the power couple from the world of nonfiction book writing. Of course, they would never use that term, being as humble and down-to-earth as they are. But what a combined track record for quality writing. Arlie's Strangers in Their Own Land focuses on Tea Party voters from Louisiana and is one of the defining books of the Donald Trump era. Earlier books of hers, such as The Time Bind, earned her accolades as a gifted sociologist and chronicler of modern American life. Adam Hochschild was one of the founders of Mother Jones magazine and is perhaps best known for King Leopold's Ghost, one of his eight books of historical narrative, all of which have a social justice focus. Full disclosure, he's also my cousin, though we had never met until we found ourselves at the same journalism conferences a few years ago. He's been a big influence on me, and he may even get me to pronounce my last name in that more Germanic way, Hochschild. We'll see. In March 2017, Adam and Arlie, who live and work in Berkeley, California, were in Boston for the Power of Narrative Conference. I had a meager guerrilla recording set up, but was able to capture a chat about their lives as writers. We'll start listening to that conversation now, just after I've asked Arlie what sort of impact Adam has on her writing projects. Adam always fits into every stage of writing. Uh, I'm at the last stage now, and um, uh, he's at a different stage in his project, and we, we're always helping each other with the stage we're in. I mean, stage one is you're not sure what you're going to write about, and um, you're trying to figure out uh, what to dive into. And stage two, you are diving in. Stage three, you're trying to get a, uh, a draft out, out of, out of yourself, to pull it out of yourself. Stage four, you're looking for criticism and direction in it. So um, we help each other in different ways, really, at each of those stages. So this one, he's helping me by saying, you know, I feel like, hey, I'm turning into a parrot. And he's saying, no, you're not a parrot. This is an important message. So this week here in Boston, while she's off talking about the book, I'm back in the hotel room working on my next book. Uh, but this past year, 2016, was fun because it was the, the first year that we both had books that came out the same year. And so there've been, there have been or will be half a dozen times where we're going to writers' conferences or book festivals together. So I'd love to hear you to retell the story you just touched on a little bit in the session about how you met. Where did you two meet and how did, uh, how did your lives together progress from there? Well, we uh, met at a Quaker work camp in Spanish Harlem in uh, New York City. And uh, I think we kind of spotted each other as uh, having similar values. Uh, and uh, I mean, we didn't come from the kinds of families that we uh, wanted to know more about. Uh, and so Adam was uh, still in high school at that point, 17. I was in my second year of college uh, at Swarthmore. And there were visits back and forth and back and forth. And finally, there was a couple. <laughs> So it, it's, it's so interesting that you two met at an event like that. How did that sort of set 
the tone for your relationship moving forward. It's just so interesting that that's where you actually met. Well, this was 1960 when we met, and the 1960s, I think, had a huge effect on our lives. It's no accident that we met uh, early in the year 1960 at a workshop on urban social change. Uh, the 60s turned this country upside down, it turned our lives upside down, it opened uh, all sorts of horizons for us. We both were involved in the civil rights movement, Sent us to Mississippi. Uh, We were both civil rights workers in Mississippi together. Uh, I got very involved in the movement against the Vietnam War. Arlie got very involved in the feminist movement, uh, organizing uh, women graduate students and women faculty at Berkeley. And uh, I think we both think of ourselves as 60s people and still Mm -hmm. have a lot of those values. In your lives together as writers, you talked about how you support each other uh, at, at various stages. And Arlie, you talked about this just a few minutes ago. Um, I wonder what, if those roles have evolved over time, um, like the way Arlie supports Adam, the way Adam supports Arlie in the writing of a book, is, is ha- has that changed over time? Are there ways, say, for example, with Arlie's latest book or your latest book, Adam, that things were a little bit different in terms of the way you sort of work together? I'm not sure. I think we've always tried to give honest feedback, and that's the best thing that uh, any writer can do for another writer. You know, really honest feedback. This works, this doesn't work, here's why, here's a suggestion to make it better. Yeah, I think uh, we've always tried to do the same thing. That hasn't changed, but I think we've probably gotten better at uh, uh, giving... Uh, helpful feedback. I don't think either of us took it wrongly in the beginning, um, but what would help, we we came to really know what that is. So it's always been goodwill, but I think we're probably better at at knowing what the manuscript before us really needs. So what would you say, Arlie, are Adam's strengths as a reader of your work? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I'm going to go on and on here. I think uh, one important uh, strength is to uh, see what it is I seem to want to say and how that matches with what he thinks would be a good story. And and often there's a a mismatch and I haven't caught it. I think his strength is encouraging me to uh, uh, go deeper into uh, whatever it is I've chosen to do. I, I tell you, I've, and this is perhaps the most important thing, but uh, as I put on my coat and leave the door uh, to get uh, into the cab to go to the airport, to go to Lake Charles, Louisiana, I feel a blessing from my back. I feel like he's blessing me on the trip. And, you know, uh, that he wants me to be where I am. He wishes me well there. And um, that's the biggest thing I would say. Um, You know, you're brave to go out there and talk to these people. He praises me. and if I run into problems, okay, he'll, he'll help with that. 
And then at later stages, uh, I can get stuck and take forever. Uh, and he'll prompt me along. Or when I got rejected by 10 publishers. No, sweetheart, stick with it. Uh, let's see what, you know. Uh, he, he, he held me up. And then at the later stages, each stage he read and reread these, and I knew he was getting tired of it. I knew <laughs> uh, it was like a broken record, but he was patient. Um, so there is so much Adam Hochschild in this book that I'm, I'm hugely grateful. Wow, as much moral support as all the other things a, a writer in the house can provide. Adam, what about you? What is it that Arlie has provided as a support to your work? Well, I feel the same kind of encouragement and belief in what I'm doing and uh, supportiveness, that feeling of having somebody cheering you on when you go out the door, even though in my case I'm just going out the door to a library or an archive and not doing something as brave as uh, diving into Tea Party country uh, in Louisiana, which is an extraordinary thing to do uh, at an age when you know, far too many of our friends are living in retirement homes, you know. She went to this totally unfamiliar part of the country, probably drove 10,000 miles there over the course of five years of research, went deep into people's lives, uh, the lives of people extraordinarily different from us. Um, I think what she does for me when she critiques my work is always trying to make it intellectually deeper. I am such a narrative person, such a story person, always looking for characters and scenes that I think I sometimes lose track of what's the larger echo that I want this work to have. And she is always looking for that deeper reverberation, asking questions that uh, help me probe to find it. One thing that's so interesting about these two books that you two have out right now, your book, Arlie, is obviously right in tune with the zeitgeist. You figured out five years ago that it was important to tell this story. And after Donald Trump got elected, it really became even more important, this story and understanding what you learned. What's also so interesting, in a similar way, Adam, I reread the epilogue uh, to... Spain in our hearts the other day. And I mentioned this to you yesterday. I couldn't help but think about the fact that Rex Tillerson um, is our Secretary of State. You wrote about a CEO in that book, a CEO of an oil company who was very involved in politics. And, and um, I couldn't help. Your books always seem to have this ramification in, in today. Uh, so it's very interesting that you're writing about the past, and yet it feels like you're writing about today. And, and there's this connection between your two books. I wonder if that was something that has been in the air for you two at all in, in recent months since the election of Donald Trump. Well, you know, I don't think any of us predicted. We, we each started our respective books about five or six years ago, uh, and we certainly did not foresee somebody like Donald Trump becoming president of the United States. Arlie certainly did see that there was a rise of a kind of hard Tea Party right in this country. And that's what attracted her to do this subject, to try to figure out who these people were and what was driving them. This had been a long-standing interest of hers that became more intense 
after the election of, of 2010 when the Tea Party became so dominant. I wish I could say, but I didn't, <laughs> I wish I could say that I foresaw that mm -hmm. someone like Trump would become president and that people might have an interest in the demagogues of the 1930s mm -hmm. uh, as a result. Um, I didn't foresee that. Uh, I certainly knew that oil companies make their own foreign policy and uh, control a great deal of what goes on in the world. Uh, they did in the 1930s when a top American oil executive, Torquild Reber, you know, secretly was General Franco's main supplier of oil, and they still do it today. And it's a little more naked today when we've got an oil company CEO who's actually Secretary of State. So, Arlie, what about you? What sort of connections are you seeing at this moment between kind of the work that Adam did with this book and the way the country is embracing the message of your book? Well, um, I think there are a lot of uh, connections between um, those two countries, the U.S. and Spain, and those two periods of time now, or the, the 1930s. Um, Adam is always talking about uh, how Franco promised the great yesterday uh, that, uh, and that that caught people's imagination. And, um, make Spain great again. <laughs> make Spain great again. And uh, so uh, there's a historical uh, echo there, and it allows us to think about how charisma works and uh, how it is a leader comes to lead and followers come to follow. What is it you're appealing to emotionally? And um, he, he, he found that, um, and, and I, I have too. A big word that has come up at this conference is empathy. Uh, we've been discussing it pretty much the whole time. It keeps coming up. It came up during your talk the other day and in the session that just happened. How important is empathy and what role does it play in your work as writers? Enormous, central, absolutely central. And I think in both uh, of our writings, uh, it, it, it has been, it's expressed, it's, 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 uh, and it's central. Um, and I think we think of empathy as an easy, natural kind of thing to have, because we all do have it, but it's, uh, I think, astonishing to see how afraid people are of, of their capacity for empathy. For example, when I first set out uh, to uh, write strangers and interview Tea Party people in the South, uh, people in Berkeley would say, oh, I couldn't do that, I'd be so mad, right? Or, oh, why are you doing that? Huh, maybe you're more right-wing than you say you are. And I found that very telling, that in, in, in fact, people who empathize very well with their children and, and uh, their friends and their community and groups for whom they have an affiliation and, and compassion, but who turn it off when they define another group of people as the enemy. Empathy can feel like a scary thing 
Like, um, are you going to over-identify with the, the people that are seem to you also um, so wrong-headed about race and so willing to embrace an imperial leader? So it's a complicated thing, and you have to, I think, um, use it. You have to really try to leap into another person's uh, skin and experience, but then leap back out because then you're saying, did I understand you? Have, have I respectfully painted the picture as you see it? And then say, as you say at the beginning, but I am who I am. I have my own commitments. And uh, if you go to empathize with a person completely honestly about who you are, and I always did that right at the beginning, um, and then you come back out and uh, offer them how it is you you have seen them uh, and ask them, did I get it right? You know, they they will say yes. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a huge central port. Has empathy had a similar role for you in your work, Adam? Well, yeah, I think that any writer has to have that for the people you're writing about. Uh, I have spent some time uh, interviewing people whose political opinions seem totally noxious to me. Uh, white supremacists in South Africa, uh, neo-Nazis there, uh, people in Stalin, in, in Russia who are ardent admirers of, of Stalin. If you're going to portray them accurately and in a way that helps the readers understand them, you have to be able to look at the world as they see it, mm -hmm. as they saw it. And I feel the same thing is true historically. If I'm writing about something that happened a century or two ago, whether it's slavery or colonialism, I want to understand the mindset of you know, young men from Europe who eagerly went out to the colonies in Africa with a mixture of idealism and greed. It wasn't necessarily one or the other that predominated. They were often wound together. Uh, I want to understand why uh, people in Europe or white people in the West Indies in, in the 1700s could take slavery for granted without questioning it as an institution. You have to understand that if you're going to be able to write about uh, uh, people at times and places like that. And I think, you know, the same thing applies to the kind of work Arlie does today. We may find Donald Trump reprehensible and dangerous and obnoxious, but, you know, the however many million people it was who voted for him are not necessarily all evil people. We've got to understand how they think. I would say Adam's empathy is expressed in two ways. If you look at King Leopold's ghost, uh, he's em empathizing with the millions of Africans uh, who were uh, conscripted into slave labor and whose arms were cut off uh, if they didn't gather the amount of rubber that they should in a certain period of time. I mean, that empathy with people who didn't have a voice and who you, you couldn't interview, you would have loved to have really uh, uh, talked to them uh, and gotten a sense of the, how they responded to the terror of that. But an empathy with them animated the entire project. 
And then you turn to the people who, who you could find out about who were trying to um, expose that uh, Holocaust. So when we look at this moment we're in right now in 2017, what gives you hope when you think about politics, um, the way people will look back at this era, as well as nonfiction storytelling? What gives you hope and what concerns you about the moment we're in right now? Well, one thing that uh, gave us both hope, I think, was the, the Women's March right after Trump's inauguration, yeah. which was the largest, you know, taking all those marches in different cities together, the largest mass demonstration in American history. Uh, I take hope from that. I take hope from the tremendous reinvigoration there seems to be in grassroots politics, uh, groups that work with people planning to run for office on the liberal side, Emily's List, Indivisible, and so forth, report a you know, tenfold, twentyfold increase in the number of people who are interested in running for office at the local level because they realize that we have to build from the ground up just the way the, the right wing has been doing for 40 or 50 years now. So I take a lot of hope from that. And I agree with Adam. I take a lot of hope from that, too. Um, since uh, <clears throat> my book came out in uh, September of last year, I've been giving a lot of talks uh, about it, but using it really as a, as a way of seeing how people are responding, because my book says how we got here, but the next question is, so now what do we do? And that's always part of the conversation. Um, and at first, I felt I was talking to depressed audience, and I felt curious, like, like, like a little bit of an antidepressant. Okay, you know, it's not that hopeless. Now, I feel like people are hot to trot, and they are in all their different ways trying to um, make a difference. Uh, I, in Oakland, just gave a, a talk at a meeting of some 30 different activist groups, and they were very cooperative with each other. They were trying to form uh, a, a coordinated, loyal opposition, and uh, each taking a different facet of, 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 the, of the overall project of uh, reforming the democratic platform so that a lot of people see something for themselves in that and opposing uh, Trump, uh, Trump's move to basically um, uh, remove a system of checks and balances and um, silence the press and suppress the judiciary. There, there is an active voice. I am much encouraged. Yeah, optimistic. So to take it back to uh, writing for a moment, the uh, I would love to hear from both of you what advice you have for uh, writers who are earlier on in their careers working in similar disciplines that you both work in. What are a few of the things that you think are, are most important? Um, Arlie, you, you come from the academic world and you've been writing for uh, lay people for a long time now. Uh, if there's somebody who's in a similar position, what do you think are the most important next steps for them to take? Uh, for people who are in a similar uh, position, I would say the first step would be to read work that 
is like the work you want to do. You know, get get some models there. Get a circle of of friends, or hopefully a spouse, who support you and whom you support. Um, and uh, those would be the first two things. And then um, realize that there are different stages, as I, I think I mentioned earlier. And you may need a different kind of support for each of those stages. Um, so you need, um, in addition to what I've mentioned, a kind of a pragmatic advice. Like Adam is often saying, if you've got a book project, find an article uh, that you can write on it that gets it out to a certain audience. Then with that article in hand, you can go to a publisher. Great, thanks. How about you, Adam, in terms of the work that you're doing? Well, I'm not sure the kind of work that I do, which is writing about things that happened 100 or 200 years ago, is what we most need at this point. I think what we most need at this point is a really first-class investigative reporting. We need people who know how to penetrate the web of offshore corporations through which so many transactions these days take place, uh, including those by Donald Trump and the people around him. We need people who know how to penetrate the bureaucracy in Russia to find out what kinds of dealings they've had with the Trump family. Uh, we need people who are forensic accountants who know how to write, who can investigate the kinds of conflicts of interest uh, between Trump's business empire and his uh, political role. Uh, these are the kinds of things we need, uh, I think, above all. Uh, and my fear looking at the world of journalism is that the way that world works like that, there is so much pressure to be up to the minute on you know, what's happening in the news. You know, anybody working for a daily newspaper, a radio show, or a TV network is, you know, has minute-by-minute minute deadlines because if, you know, the rival network or the rival newspaper gets the story a second before you do, they're the ones that get the clicks and the page views. That doesn't allow for the kind of investigative work, which I think is what is most needed uh, at this point in time. I think we also need leakers on the inside who are going to... Uh, uh, tell us what stuff is going on that we ought to know about and don't know about. Who are going to leak documents from uh, government agencies and from private businesses. What are next? What are the next projects for you two, Adam? What do you have coming up? What are you working on right now? I have two books in the works. One is a collection of uh, previously published magazine pieces, essays, introductions to other people's books or whatever that I'm assembling into one, one volume uh, and rewriting and polishing these pieces and eliminating overlap as I do so. Uh, the second is a story about some early 20th century radicals and dreamers whom I'm trying to weave into a network. And it'll be about three or four years before I've got that finished, I'm afraid. You have been teaching writing for a long time. And when you come to conferences like this, you talk about the work of book writers in a very uh, high level, nuanced way. What uh, have you ever thought about 
a book about writing? No, I haven't. It somehow doesn't excite me. I enjoy talking about it. I really enjoy working with uh, students or people who take part in writing workshops. I've done writing workshops not just at universities but at news organizations, which can be very, very interesting. I like doing that. Somehow the thought of a book about writing doesn't excite me particularly. I don't know why. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, people will have to read your books for the education or take your classes at Berkeley. Uh, Arlie, what is next for you? I'm not sure, um, but I'm, uh, I'm extremely interested in how people do empathize and try to reach across uh, empathy walls. And I would love to actually follow people who are trying to do that. Uh, for example, I uh, just got an email from a parishioner here outside Boston of the Episcopal Church of the Epiphany who said, I've read your book, I was really struck by it, and, and could I get in touch, could my church get in touch with um, a church in Lake Charles, Louisiana, because I think there are big political differences, and I, you know. So I emailed a friend in Louisiana who had voted for Donald Trump and so on, and said, sure. So these are getting together. How does that go? I'm interested. Or schools. I would like to see schools have exchange programs and work on projects like Habitat for Humanity, but you've got some kids from the north and some from the south. You've got other projects where kids from the coasts and others are inland working together on something. I'd like to be a fly on the wall. How how mutual discovery you know happens, and is there common ground? I mean, when do people uh, buck and say, no, no, I've got my job is only to defend my beliefs. Uh, wait, or I'm the victim here, you're not. They're, they're, it's complicated, this business of empathy. It's not just a feel-good thing, it's, it's a capacity and uh, to, to counter the challenges to it and uh, not get lost with it, keep your, your goals. So I, part of me is interested in that. I don't know if it's a book, but something. And another part is, hey, maybe I should do for Appalachia what I did for mm -hmm. the South. That's fascinating. I've mm -hmm. never been there. Those are both beautiful ideas. I love that fact that you seem to be in this role where you're connecting communities now. And it's interesting because you're doing that on this grassroots level, what seems harder to bridge is the differences between our, our politicians. So do you have any suggestions for them? Well, uh, to, I think we could get a people-to-people -people movement really going that uh, puts them to shame as our leaders. Well, Arlie and Adam, thank you so much, my fellow Hoke Shields. Now I'm going to try to say it your way. Thank you so much for the time. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Yes, we do too. It was Bye -bye. a pleasure for us. Learn more about Adam and Arlie Hochschild by reading their faculty bios on the UC Berkeley website. You'll find show notes and links at themedianarrative.com. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. 
Matt Jensen composed and recorded the theme music. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to The Media Narrative and write a review at Apple Podcasts. I'm Rob Hochschild. Thanks for listening. Thank you.